Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Uh, got an amazing one today. You know. Finally, the great Michael Lewis is my guest, author of bestsellers like The Big Short, Moneyball, Liars Poker, on the podcast now for the third time. He's a three-peat, and believe me, you're not on the Al Franken podcast three times, unless you're a fabulous guest, uh, except for uh, Norm Ornstein. For some reason, uh, we keep having Norm on. I think he's been on six, seven, nine times we we don't keep good records uh, here at the al franken podcast and and norm is just he's not good uh, am i right peter uh al i gotta tell you man this is your call i, I know we keep having norm on he's terrible right yeah yeah he is i don't know why you keep having him on it's almost like he has something on you michael lewis uh, certainly has nothing on me and has been terrific. One of our very first guests here on the podcast. That was about his great, I'd say, prescient book, The Fifth Risk, which was about the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration and how it was a complete anomaly. Uh, transitions in the past between uh, outgoing administrations and incoming administrations uh, had been uh, extremely professional, been uh, taken very seriously by both outgoing and incoming. And this was uh, just a complete departure. The Obama administration worked assiduously, diligently to prepare for the transition. And the Trump transition team, led by Trump's son-in-law, Jared uh, Kushner, didn't even show up for those uh, three-day sessions. And it was clear that Donald Trump had uh, no idea how government worked, and, and did not care. And the title of the book, The Fifth Risk, was about the uh, unknown or unforeseeable risk that might face a new administration. And uh, one of those that Lewis touched on in The Fifth Risk was a pandemic. So this book that we uh, talk about on this podcast is his newest, Premonition, and yes, it's about the mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic here in the United States. But like all of Michael's bestsellers, it surprises you and tells the stories of a few, uh, in this case, public health officials who got it right and uh, ran into not a small amount of dysfunction uh, from within the CDC. Uh, Trump appointees do not come off uh, very well. Uh, but the problems are different than you uh, might have thought. And as always with Michael's books, a very entertaining and illuminating read. So uh, we'll be starting my conversation with Michael in, in a few minutes. But first, I just want to let you know that uh, I got me a wee bit of the COVID. Actually, I, 
I was going to record a uh, podcast on Ukraine with a couple of experts uh, on the subject. Nothing more important going on in, in the world, but I got sick. Just felt like a bad flu. It hasn't been fun, of course, but I've been vaccinated and boosted and uh, not as sick as I would have been otherwise. Never in danger. Very grateful to science. Mighty grateful. Mighty grateful, as we say in Minnesota. Okay, and uh, now there's something I'd uh, like to get off of my chest, and I have to admit that when I watch Senate hearings uh, in particular, I really regret uh, not being there, and particularly in the SCOTUS hearings in the Judiciary Committee. And one of the reasons is that I, I really I, I don't see my former Democratic colleagues and, and the new uh, Democratic members really engage and respond to the Republican senators, who I I think uh, during the Jackson hearings were outrageous and disgraceful. When they're so, I, I think we should call them out on it. Just, uh, just as an example, Ted Cruz uh, held up a book, uh, Anti-Racist Baby, and asked, in sort of a, a snarky tone, asked Judge, uh, soon to be Justice Jackson, do you think there are racist babies? And I would have engaged Ted in, uh, on that in, in a polite way. Uh, something like, uh, Ted, you held up this book, Anti-Racist Baby, and asked Judge Jackson, do you really think there are racist babies? And uh, when it came my turn to ask questions, I, I would have brought that up and said something along the lines of, uh, Ted, you know, I thought that was an interesting question. I mean, Ted, I think you would acknowledge that there are a lot of racists in this country, a lot of them in, in Texas, certainly, and everywhere, everywhere in this country. It's unfortunate, but I think it's an undeniable reality. So I think the question you're really posing is, at what age do people start to have racist attitudes? Are, are there racist Babies. Let's take a history of, of race in, say, Ted, your state, Texas. Uh, in 1860, your state of Texas had 182,566 slaves. The uh, philosophical and legal justification for slavery was that blacks were inferior uh, to white people. You'd acknowledge that, Ted, that, that was the justification. Now, you went to Princeton and, and Harvard Law School, Ted. Uh, you would acknowledge that uh, that was the exact justification that was given for the Confederacy, which killed 360,000 American soldiers during the Civil War. The Union Army, of course, uh, was, was just that, the Union Army, the United States military, the Army of the Confederacy, which, of course, by definition, was not. The American Army, the Confederates made that very clear. So the Confederacy during the Civil War, an entirely different country from the United States as far as Texans certainly were concerned, killed 360,000 American troops, which incidentally was almost exactly the same uh, number of Americans killed by the Nazis, who also based their whole, whole thing on race. Remember, they were the master race, just like Texans felt that whites were. Just trying to give some, some kind of perspective in terms of, of racism. 
because uh, that was what your question was about, racism. And I will note that during the January 6th coup attempt, the Confederate flag was proudly carried uh, throughout the Capitol. Now, this is from the cornerstone speech given by Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy on March 21st, 1861, the first day of spring. It's a good day, good day for a whipping. This is what the vice president of the Confederacy gave as the justification of succession, the cornerstone, if you will. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. And based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth, white folks in your state, the state you represent on this committee, Senator Cruz, based on that moral truth, your state enslaved 182,566 black men, women, and children in many cases, and by no means all, working them to death under the lash, breaking up families by selling children to the highest bidder, raping the women and sometimes the children. This was the great physical, philosophical, and moral truth that justified slavery and all that came with it, including the inherited wealth that has been passed down to generations of white Texans. And might I add, Senator Graham of white South Carolinians and Senator Hawley of white Missourians, Senator Blackburn of white Tennesseans, and Senator Cotton, who, who called slavery, quote, a necessary evil. Your words, Senator. Your, your words. That this redounded, of course, to the wealth of, of white Arkansans who carry that wealth today. And so let's go back to the question, can a baby be racist? Now, Alexander Stevens owned 34 slaves. His children, indeed, the children of slave owners from all the Confederate states, had all been babies at one time or another. Were his children idiots? Probably not. Their father gave the famous cornerstone speech and was, after all, the vice president of the, of the Confederacy. They were probably smart kids. Were these children able to figure out from their father's attitudes toward the family slaves that the Negro is not equal to the white man? No doubt. But at what age? Ah, First, how old is a baby? Well, as you can imagine, there are different definitions, but almost uniformly, the definition of a baby includes three stages. Newborn, that's birth to two months. Infant, which is two months to a year. And toddler. Now, both the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Centers for Disease Control consider a toddler 
to be between a year and 36 months old, three years old. Now, some of our senators consider the CDC to be politically and scientifically unreliable. For example, in July of 2000, the CDC was saying that COVID was a very serious disease that would continue to infect and kill people. But the esteemed senator from Texas disagreed. Here's what Senator Cruz said about the CDC's projections about COVID. Here's, here's, Ted, what you said in July of 2020. If it ends up that Biden wins in November, I hope he doesn't. I don't think he will. But if he does, I guarantee you the week after the election, suddenly all those Democratic governors, all those Democratic mayors will say, everything's magically better. Go back to work, go back to school. Suddenly the problems are solved. You won't even have to wait for Biden to be sworn in. Now, as it turns out, of course, Ted uh, was wrong about that. And Ted, I'm sorry, but I missed when you apologized for that to the families of the folks who died because they thought the whole COVID thing was just a hoax, you know, based on your remarks. They thought it was just a hoax. So if you could point us to your apology to those who lost family members, because of your statement, I would ask the chairman to enter that into the record. Senator Cruz's uh, apology uh, for killing people. Can we, um, I put that in the record. So the CDC says that a baby is a baby until they're three years old. Now, forget a three-year-old. A two-year-old baby picks up signals from their parents. Now, obviously, the two-year-old baby of a, of a slave owner is going to pick up some racist attitudes, right? Now, I don't think there's much dispute about that, but most racism is far less overt, especially 156 years later, at least to the untrained eye. Anti-racism is a way of looking at how racism works and how it's passed down but also about how not to pass it down. That's, that's really the whole idea behind anti-racism. T to imply or to insert that unconscious racist attitudes that we're consciously not aware of don't exist, well, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Racism still exists, uh, for example, when it's more likely that Bronwyn or Ashley gets the job interview that Shaniqua doesn't get. Or when a black person gets followed around a store. Or feels the need to know exactly where their receipt is when they leave that store. And that's, that's real. It's in the legacy policies of elite universities. It's in mortgage lending in white neighborhoods versus in, in black neighborhoods. It's also in very subtle messages that are sent to children at, at the earliest age. And so the anti-racist movement is basically saying, let's be more alert to our unconscious biases. And let's think about them and how we internalize them without realizing it. That's, that's what makes them unconscious. And maybe that requires a little effort. Put effort like self-examination. Or God forbid, reading a book to a child. And, and maybe, maybe it requires courage. 
into fighting something that we know in our heart of hearts kind of exists, even if we don't really want to admit it. That's anti-racism, at least my understanding of it. So this has been good, Ted. I, I'm, I'm glad you're on the committee because I think you provide a great bouncing off point to discuss something very important. And you too, all of you, Senators Graham and Hawley and Cotton and Blackburn, isn't this how we should be doing things? Judge Jackson, I have no questions. And Mr. Chairman, once again, I would urge that we include Senator Cruz's remarks apologizing for spreading disinformation uh, that very well may have caused the deaths of, of thousands of Americans. Um, thank you, and I yield the rest of, of my time. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now... Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. I love your, your podcast. I listened to season uh, one, and I've listened to uh, season two, but season three I haven't listened to because it's not out yet. Right. But it will be when this thing hits. So Yeah. yeah. And uh, the first one was about refs, right? Yeah. I love the stuff about uh, going back to New York to make those calls in the last couple minutes of the game, the one that everyone cares about, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the conundrum at the heart of the referees season was why the refs are under attack everywhere and sort of like what it means for inequality in the society. And you, and you take just sports that you can show, and it's just evident on the face of it that sports refereeing, it's like NBA basketball refereeing is better than it's ever been. That it's been, you go back a generation 
and they didn't have feedback. They had no technology help. But that's also their problem, the technology, because everybody can see when they fuck up. That's right. Which they couldn't before. That's right. And everyone focuses on that call in the last two minutes. Everyone thinks the game hinges on that, whereas you've just played an entire game where that's the game. That's the games that one call. And in New York, they have every angle on it and they show it to the crowd, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got this weird situation where they're demonstrably more accurate than they've ever been. And people hate them more and more every day. They didn't used to need uh, police escorts from the arenas. Now they need them to get to the arena, to leave the arena, and they get death threats. And when they're in the arena, it's uglier than it's ever been. And it's it's an interesting thing that they're better at their jobs, yet yet thought to be worse at their jobs. Because the technology can prove them wrong. You're right. You can. See, everybody gets to see on the screen overhead when they make a mistake. What I don't understand, because I, you know, I'm a fan of sports, is I cut them some slack, right? That's not an easy thing to do. They're not trying. You're a fair man. They're not trying to screw it up. Uh, but the fans think they're trying to screw it up. And, but the question is like, all right, who benefits from the attack on the referees, from trying to undermine their authority? Not just in sports, oh, but across. I, I the think sp- I know the answer to this because I listened to your thing, yeah, which yeah, is no. the stars. Yeah, yeah, stars do, yes. The people who are most able to influence them in a position of weakness are the stars. And you you port the same sort of problem into, I don't know, government regulation. Yep. Who benefits from government regulators being weakened and government being attacked as inefficient or stupid or whatever it is? It's people with the means to influence the regulators that you get a similar sort of thing in lots of walks of life. So anyway, that was just the first season of the thing. But the, the broader idea was you like take a a role or a character in American life. In this case, it was referees. Second season was coaches. The season that's about to drop is, is experts. You Through the lens of that character, like what's it telling us about the world? What's happened to this character? Uh, and it enables me to tell stories. You know, we, we've, got a, we've got a character and there's, there's seven episodes around the character. And you went into like the Consumer Financial Protection Board, which under the Trump administration was completely gutted. And it was, you go an into- to, it was a rare attempt to create a new referee inside the government on the back of the financial crisis that was widely approved of when it was created, clearly needed. I mean, the imbalance between big financial institutions, sophisticated players and individuals in financial markets is pretty severe. And one side does bad things to the other. And it's really helpful to have the referee there to say, you can't do that. And of course, it was created during the Obama administration. Elizabeth Warren had pushed this thing and helped develop it. Yep. And it worked during that. But then when the Trump people came in, uh, they were on the other side, basically. Would you, would you say that's fair? Well, it's more than fair. Mick Mulvaney was sent in to gut it, to basically yep. shut it down. So it was an example of the hostility to the ref. It, and it was what surprised me about that. It probably didn't surprise you. Yeah. But it, what surprised me was that an institution, a referee, who was created for the benefit of just ordinary Americans, that the gutting of it didn't outrage people. I, I, I'd have thought that lots of people would say, we want this thing. We saw what happened when we don't have this kind of thing. This kind of thing is, it does nothing but 
good for us, for little people. Why are they doing this? But people don't pay attention. Either they don't pay attention or they have been so persuaded that anything the government does is wrong, that they just let it happen. This was one example of a broader phenomenon, right? I mean, the Trump administration rolls in and treats all the agencies in the government as if they're evil, irrelevant, wasteful, unnecessary. And I'd have thought, you don't show up for the transition and the American people would be irritated with you. Your job is to run this thing. You got to take it seriously. You can't just so clearly flout your responsibility without pissing people off. But people didn't get that angry about it. Well, that's what uh, The Fifth Risk, which was uh, your previous book before Premonition, which is what we're going to talk about today. And all this all ties together because Premonition is about the handling of the pandemic. And you focus on experts who um, are brilliant, brilliant people and who, to a great extent, ignored. The fifth risk was about what's the unanticipated risk that's going to hit us. And of course, we get a huge one, which was the pandemic. The whole book is about how Trump doesn't take the government seriously and how just how insane he is in terms of believing that he can figure out everything. A guy who has no curiosity and knows nothing. <laughs> and, and so the premonition is about these people who actually know about infectious diseases and how they spread and how to stop it and them up against this, this uh, a Trump uh, response to the pandemic. Is that a fair? It's a fair assessment, but with, with I would add this. The premonition is very, as a, as a st- kind of story and a structure, it's very similar to the big short. It's me walking into a, a very complicated, broken system and finding characters in the system whose experience tells us about a lot about why and how the system's broken. In the case of the premonition, with these characters, uh, one of them a local public health officer, uh, one of them the guy who- That's Charity. Yeah, Charity Dean. One of them uh, are, are a pair of doctors who, who created the US pandemic response plan in the Bush administration, and a like, crack virus hunter at, at University of California, San Francisco, who was in the process of trying to build a global detection system to stop pandemics before they happen. But these, with these people- what their experience showed you was that the problems ran deeper than Trump. Uh, Trump was horrible. Like, uh, yes, there's like blood on his hands. Th- this was- isn't really Trump barely appears in this at all. And, 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 and the book ends, you know, this is why I was comfortable writing it when I wrote it. Uh, the book ends in like basically May of 2020, because what it, what it really is, is sort of like these people's experience showing you why when this thing happened, Whenever it happened, it was likely to be kind of a mess. How much of a mess was going to be determined by like who was in the White House and so on. But we were vulnerable. And like one of the doctors, one of the doctors who created the pandemic plan said Trump was a comorbidity. He wasn't the cause of our response. He's like another thing that was sickening us as we were dying of something else entirely. And the bigger problem was the sort of dysfunctional relationship between the people and the federal government and the gutting or the undermining of the authority of the civil service, uh, then the politicization of the civil service. This is something I'd like to ask you about, actually. Can I, because this particular thing, you were in the middle of it when you were a senator. 
over a 50-year period, a lot of these jobs at the top of the civil service, like running the Centers for Disease Control, have been become presidential appointees as opposed to career civil servants. And you want to know the difference between the two? Look at the difference between Robert Redfield, Trump Lackey, who's on the top of the CDC and is screwing up the pandemic every which way because he's on the phone with the White House is shouting at him and he's listening. And Tony Fauci, who Trump can't fire without cause because he's career. The moral authority that Fauci had, Redfield just was never able to acquire. And when you take these jobs, as we did in the Reagan administration with the CDC, and turn the head of the CDC from a career civil servant to a political, a presidential appointee, you have all these knock-on effects, I think. Uh, One is the person who's hired has got a political identity. They're hired out of the pool of people who are friendly to the president, as opposed to the pool of people who are qualified to the job. Uh, Not that there's not some overlap. Two, they are answerable on a very tight leash to the White House and can be fired with a phone call. But three, and maybe like the biggest of all, everybody now knows they're only going to be there for a couple of years. Takes them forever to get confirmed by the Senate. Uh, Once the president moves on, they're going to move on. So you got built in rapid turnover at the top of the organization. And who can, these organizations got tens of thousands of employees and they're unbelievably complicated. And when the whole organization knows the boss is only going to be there 18 months, it really changes the tenor of the thing. And what we got in the response from the CDC was kind of exactly what we incentivized the CDC to do, which was to be scared of its own shadow, unwilling to step out and take political heat, way too much fealty to the White House. And what we could have got if we'd had a career people there was some resistance to whoever happened to be in the White House and also an ability to communicate directly with American people that didn't exist. It seems so obvious to me when you see the performance of an institution that's got this sort of transient leadership that the, why isn't the Senate right now looking at the structure of the federal government and saying, my God, this is a mistake that these 4,000 presidential appointees should be reduced to I don't know, 200. And we need to make a lot of these, especially risk management functions that are very technical and require expertise. We make that permanent jobs and the person who's in it will be kind of like best in class and everybody will understand that and they'll be there for a while and we'll have a culture there that can really respond to the problem. Why aren't senators kind of talking about this? Well, for the Republicans uh, right now, it serves their interest in a way to they're slowing everything down it's impossible <laughs> now to uh confirm people they're and they're they're going as slow as possible and these are really important positions national security positions uh i have a former my former uh, judiciary counsel was nominated to be on the ftc and he's still not confirmed yet and why is it, why did, I mean, I, I know this is a naive question, but I'm a senator, a U.S. senator. I happen to be a Republican. Uh, mm-hmm. Why do I want to put the, my country at such risk? Oh, because you want your country to be at such risk because hopefully things will completely mess up and then we can re- elect a Republican president. 
They, they don't want, they have no vested interest in Biden doing well and the country doing well. They really don't. Right. What if there was- Most a of them. What if Trump had been reelected? Do you think they, they have a Republican president? They don't want this to be another debacle on his watch. Do, do you think then they'd be having the conversation? You'd have Trump as president. So you'd have right. Trump as president. Right. So right. think about what that would be like. And it depends. Did he win the election or yeah. did uh, yeah. January right. 6th work? How is he president? Are we in a, in a uh, essentially a uh, dictatorship? Right. <laughs> Do we have? So, I mean, so, what's so going I thought, on? I thought, <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else because the, there is an example that I think is it's small but telling. Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy, came into the job in the Biden administration and she understood this problem. And she saw that in the Department of Energy, there is this job that, you, that should be career civil service. And it's, it's managing threats to the electric grid, uh, cyber threats to the electric grid. Like, and at, one day we're going to wake up and this thing is going to happen. Everybody's going to say, how come I don't have power for two months and people are dying in hospitals and it's going to be a mess. And they're going to say, how come this wasn't managed more intelligently? And they're going to go turn to this little department in the Department of Energy and it's gonna, they're going to find a presidential appointee in the job. Jennifer Granholm went to the Senate and asked for the job to be turned into a career civil service job. And Angus King, who I really like, independent from Maine, said no, because to turn it into a career civil service job would make it seem less important, that it needs the imprimatur of, of Senate confirmation uh, for it to, to be accepted as an important job which seemed to me cockeyed uh, to me. That didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't uh, to me. I mean, when you're talking about like Fauci, this is exactly what your book is about, yeah. which is uh, the CDC being run by Redfield, who didn't know what he was doing and also was uh, taking orders from Trump. Fauci had uh, credibility and then was sidelined basically at a certain point by Trump because uh, he didn't agree with Trump. And you had people running response. And, and to be fair to you and your book, your book isn't about the Trump administration fucking up. That, that was sort of, you very much put that behind the scenes. You don't focus on that. If, if you're looking for scenes of, of Trump saying, no, I can handle this and being an idiot. That's not your book. Your book is focusing on these actual experts who should be listened to and are ignored. And, and part of it actually is you paint the CDC also as this huge organization that has a little bit of just by its institutionalness is a little afraid to do certain kinds of things, right? To this day, it astonishes me that we're two, we're two years into this and the whole society has not swiveled its, its attention to the local public health officers who actually were fighting diseases on the ground before the pandemic, who actually had the kind of battlefield command responsibility if there was a TB outbreak, for example, or HIV or whatever it was. Because if you were with them, before the pandemic, you would have seen that the CDC wants no, wanted no part of the, of the battles, especially if there were, if there was like political implications, if they were, were going to get hot and, 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 and controversial. I'll give you an example. So the main character of the book is Charity Dean. 
start whose whose career really she's a doctor, but whose career really starts when she becomes the public health officer for Santa Barbara County. And so she's one as such is one of 3000 local public health officers in America who have the legal authority to do pretty dramatic things if they sense the spread of communicable disease. It's an obsession with her communicable disease. So at the time she's a little girl, she makes herself a student of communicable disease in the way that like Patton was a student of war. And she takes her job very seriously. And when you take one of those jobs very seriously, you end up in essentially a television drama that because you're looking for the bad thing and you find the bad thing over and over and it is terrifying. She found herself, this is like one of a hundred stories that fell out of her back in like 2014, called up by the local hospital in Santa, in Santa Barbara. They say, we have a boy who's a student at UCSB and his, he's just w- walked in. He's now in the ICU and his legs are purple. She has to figure out what the hell this is. It turns out it's meningitis. It's highly transmissible. And he's a very social member of his university, lacrosse team, fraternity. And so, so it's like, all right, what do we do to prevent a meningitis outbreak on this campus? It's actually one of the things that terrifies college health people, one, this sort of outbreak. She's on the phone with the health director of UCSB, but the CDC has to be brought in. And so they're on the phone too. And Charity, she is kind of battlefield command type, in moments has a plan. And the plan is, we're going to thin the population on campus by getting some hotel rooms so that they aren't jammed together in dorms in quite the same way. We're going to shut down the fraternities. We're going to administer a drug that's approved in Europe, but the FDA is still testing a vaccine. And she's listing these things she's going to do. And the CDC is thinking on the phone saying, you're not allowed to do any of that. There's no scientific, there's no evidence that any of that works. And she says, evidence, I've got a boy whose legs are about to be amputated in the hospital. I'm just trying to shut this thing down. And this all makes sense to me. Do you have a better plan? And they then throw her under the bus. They say, if you do any of this, it's all on you. We didn't approve it. And, you know, it's your job that's on the line if anything goes wrong, if anybody gets sick from this vaccine, so on and so forth. Now, this is Obama's president. This is the CDC yeah, under right. Obama. Yeah, this is our CDC under Obama. So, so this is not Trump's no, CDC. No, it's not. It's not it, okay. and, it, and, it, and it's the kind of thing, but it's the kind of thing that happens over and over again in her career. This is not an uncommon thing for her to have the CDC saying, all right, you're in the middle of the battle. It's your problem. And the, the, the desperate health officer at the, on the campus at UCSB is like, yes, please, let's do this. We need to do something. So- the CDC then says, okay, if you're going to do it, could you do these things you want to do one at a time so we can measure scientifically their effects? And so there's like a paper to write at the end of it. And she says, one at a time measure. I mean, we're trying to stop a disease, not write a science paper. She, at that point, she says they, they really need to, be, they need to stop calling themselves a center for disease control and they need to start calling themselves centers for disease observation and reporting because that's what they're more interested in doing. <laughs> right. And she banned, she banned CDC people from her investigations. She does all this stuff on the campus. There's not another case. No one knows why. What worked? Was it the distancing? Was it the drug? Who knows? But the punchline was two years later, I think it was the University of Oregon. It was some big state school. There is an outbreak of meningitis on the campus. And she gets a call from the health director from the campus saying, we don't know what to do. And the CDC said to call you because you're the expert. (laughs) Now, what's wrong with this picture? There are stories like that over and over that told you that 
when the shooting started, they kind of didn't want to be there. And the problem, the real problem is we'd invested all the status in those people in the CDC. The local public health officer had, was a nobody, had no status. Nobody knew, knew who they were. You know, you want to start locating the reasons for the American response that was really bad. I mean, hundreds of, it's, they're just numbers now, but hundreds of thousands of people died who didn't need to die. Oh, and there's still people dying, and part of the reason people are dying, of course, is they're not getting vaccinated, and that has a lot to do with other things. That's a totally different thing. It's a different thing, but it's related, but it's a different thing. But when you start to kind of get at why we're so bad at taking care of ourselves, you have to go look down in the society. You have to go look at the people who are on the ground. The fact that you can't go to the CDC and find out sort of what you should do or what happened is a reflection of like many decades of degradation of the risk management instrument, many decades, not just Trump, of people changing the structure of the place, kind of hedging the authority of the place, making the place afraid of its own shadow, poisoning the relationship between federal agencies and the American people. There's a whole lot going on that led to the response. And what I thought was going to happen beforehand, I actually was asked, weirdly, I was on tour for the fifth risk in whatever it was, November of 2019. And a British journalist said, what is it going to take? I mean, they look, even the Brits look at, we've got their own madnesses, look at our society and, and they say, like, how is it that a democracy, in a democracy, some large chunk of the population views its own government as the enemy. Like, how does that happen? And the guy was asking me, what does it, what will it take for people to appreciate what you're saying? Like, to appreciate that there's this keeping a safe aspect to the government, that if we degrade it, we will be unsafe, that you're actually committing suicide here. And I said, I think a pandemic would do it because I, and I said, I said, I think if it's a pandemic and like rich people were as exposed as poor people and there are lots of people dying, that that common threat would cause people to rally together and respond in a cohesive way. And boy, was I wrong. Well, the rich, rich uh, could protect themselves. And, and people could tell a story how it wasn't going to affect them. Also, the Trump, I mean, I, you know, you could look at the fifth risk as saying, like, something really bad happens, the Trump people are going to handle it badly. Yeah, well, <laughs> that could have that been that, you. Well, that's true. Well, you could look the at it and say. conclusion of your book. Yeah, that's true. That's totally right. Uh, that Something bad's going to happen, the Trump people are going to hand, handle it badly. But why would the, it's sort of like, why would the society al even allow them to handle, handle it badly? You would think it would be just be removed from their Well, control. you know what, you, I was reminded of, of uh, Reagan's thing. The eight what, most what, dangerous the, words or whatever it is. In, in the English language <laughs> yeah. are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah, I got to add right? those, I got to add those up. But yeah, whatever, how many words I'm that is. I'm from the <laughs> government and... Um, I'm here to help. Nine, nine words, words, and it became eight words. I'm Jared Kushner, and I'm here to help. <laughs> during during COVID, yeah. you're cl you're clearly on tour. So we, we got this thing. Okay, a million people have died, and it's not over. It, it's really not over. This thing could morph at any moment, and the idea that this will never happen again is cra is crazy. But let's say it's over. Let's for fun say it's over. And a million people die. For kicks. Let's for just kicks. For, just for kicks, say it's over. <laughs> um, and that wasn't enough to bring us together. 
what will it take? It's just terrifying. It, I mean, basically, I, I, the way I view it when I back way away from it is I say, well, the only reason we've been allowed to behave the way we've behaved in relation to our government and govern ourselves the, as sloppily as we have is that we've been going through an extraordinary period of relative peace and prosperity for a long time where people didn't really feel an existential threat. And they didn't feel even this is an existential threat. What's the existential threat that's required? What level do we need to go before people say, geez, we need this thing to work? And you're not allowed as president to not pay attention to it or undermine it. And we need these people who are in these jobs to actually be the experts in what they're doing, not Robert Redfield. It's terrifying because it's almost like that's what's got, got to happen. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with Michael Lewis. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. We're back with Michael Lewis. Here's one of the things that's complicating things and make, actually making things impossible which is disinformation and also the immense divisions. So there are people in this country who do feel there is an existential threat, but they feel the existential threat is their loss of status. Yep. Uh, that has to do with race. A yep. lot of it uh, has to do with that. And gender. And gender, and also has to do with economics. So these yep. are people who look at, the elites and affluent people and with great resentment. And there's some uh, truth in some of that, right? Yep, yep. Uh, absolutely. And then you have social media and you have the ability for people like, say, Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and those people to make you think, oh, you know what? Maybe uh, the vaccine will kill you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I, I do have a joke on tour, which is that uh, number one uh, cause of death uh, in the United States uh, for last year has been Tucker Carlson. <laughs> and this last week, he did a story about a Kearney, Nebraska man who uh, was uh, vaccinated at exactly 1245 on Monday uh, p.m. and was dead. Exactly 12 hours later, what he didn't tell you was that his car was hit by a train. Now. <laughs> he really did that? Is that true? No, no, no. That's a joke oh, that I oh, made I up. Okay. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it rings true, doesn't no, it? I, I, you got me. You had me. I, yeah. I, it's, totally, it's totally plausible. You know, it's funny. There is a thing, there is a thing going on that's more legitimate than just 
uh, Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson lying to people in the response. It's mixed in with the just pure disinformation. But it is true that m- medical expertise is essentially probabilistic. It's like weather expertise or forecasting elections. Or, it's better, but it is true that you, if you scour the planet, you will find someone who got really sick from the vaccine. And if you scour the planet, you'll find someone who was vaccinated who got really sick. You'll find somebody. you find someone because, who died from yeah, uh, because. Yes, yes. But if you go by the percentages yes, of would you right. rather have a one in three million chance of getting really sick from the vaccine or a one in 10 chance of dying from not having the vaccine. That's my point is people don't go by the percentages. That people don't think probabilistically. They think in terms of stories and they're predisposed to believe one story or another story. Also, they're, they're lied to constantly. Yeah. My point is that you don't need to find a story that's not true to inflame this mistake in people's minds. Uh, that you can pick, cherry pick an example that ignores the general odds. So you're not lying to people. You're just saying, oh, this person no, got- No, but, but that's a healthy dose of it. I mean, that's why the uh, car hit by a train is why you believed it. Yes, you'll have the, somebody got a clot from the Johnson & Johnson. Right. Right, and died. And yep. that happened. Yep. So that's not a lie. But they lie all the time. Yeah, so that, that complicates things. There's also lying going on. Yeah. There's a more, if you talk to, so we did this for the podcast this season. If you talk to medical professionals, doctors, nurses, they will tell you that all right, we didn't quite see this coming, like the degree of resistance to our expertise in the pandemic and hostility, like Nurses getting punched by people who, after they tell the person they have COVID because they think the, per- the nurse is lying and it's all a hoax, that kind of stuff. But, but, but they would tell you that even before the pandemic, that there had been a steady trend of Americans being more and more resistant to dubious of medical expertise, thinking they knew because they went on WebMD and found something. Mm-hmm. And it's a really curious thing because if you want to pick a field that's clearly getting better and better. I mean, medical expertise is one of them. I mean, you go back 100 years and the doctor is more likely to kill you than help you. And it's been, there's been steady progress in the science, like the referees, like steadily getting better. But people are treating them as if they know less and less. The pandemic response isn't happening in a vacuum. There were hints that we would respond the way we responded to. Now, how did we do in relationship to other countries in the world? Huh. Well, the statistic that was really stable up until we had preferential access to the vaccine, was that we had a bit more than 4% of the world's population and a bit more than 20% of the world's deaths. The Lancet did a study, this was now a year and a bit ago, where they were just saying, they were asking the question, if the United States had just performed as well in the pandemic as other G8 countries or G7 countries, I can't remember which, which, which but it industrialized, rich democracies, that at that point, there would be 150,000 people alive who who were now dead. That we just, in our response, just by not being as good as the average, had killed 150,000 people. Now, added to this, which makes it even more curious, 
is that back in like middle of 2019, there's an organization in Washington called the Nuclear Threat Initiative, broadened their brief and did a multi-year study trying to determine which countries were best and, and which countries were least prepared for a pandemic. They spent millions of dollars and brought in all these experts and they measured, tried to measure all these things that a country would need for a pandemic response. And they judged that the United States was number one, that we were going to be the best. And it was because we had these resources and we had the expertise. It really was like preseason college football rankings that everybody thinks that- Texas. Or USC. <laughs> or USC. You can, there are a handful of them that they're always like, oh, they're going to be good this year. They have the best recruits. They have- a, and for whatever reason, they then suck. And there was, there was clearly this gap, real gap, between potential and, and actual performance. I want to ask you something about testing, because this is one place we really fell down. And also about, remember uh, Trump kept saying, when I got here, the cupboard was bare. <laughs> Obama left the cupboard bare. Now, what he didn't mention was that he'd been there for three years before the pandemic happened so if he got there and on day one or during the transition he himself had said oh my god the cupboard's bare we better fill that cupboard in the next three years (laughs) (laughs) so that we're prepared for something that happens in three years that's right so and at one point you go they don't have the swabs Yes. For the testing. And this is, this is fairly into the pandemic. They don't have the swabs. You see these cataclysmic and almost comic screw-ups with the swabs. So the, 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 the person, Joe DeRisi, who's a, a movie star virus hunter at, at University of California, San Francisco, when he sees the CDC doesn't have a test that works, he spins up the biggest, fastest coronavirus testing lab, I think on the West Coast anyway, in March or March of 2020, but he's going looking for the stuff he needs to test and he needs swabs. He can't find them anywhere. He finally gets onto the White House to Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner's that elite team that had been built to respond to things. So swabs are on the way and they're in a truck. This is life or death kind of thing. They're waiting for the swabs. The truck is moving across country. They're trying to figure out where the truck is. The truck gets lost. <laughs> they finally find the truck parked in Sacramento. And when they open the truck, they find Q-tips. It's Q-tips. not swabs. It's not swabs. I, 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 uh, that's in the book. <laughs> yeah, it's in the book. So two things going on at once, I think. That it's hard to go find something when you go look for something when you don't want to find it. Like the Trump administration clearly made a decision that we just don't want to even find coronavirus. And the way this expressed itself is in real ineptitude and detection. And it, it, more than ineptitude. Uh, so not only does the CDC have a test that fails right away and is the single point of failure. They don't say like to the billion mi- microbiology labs we have, go f- go create your own test because they could all do it. They said, yeah, they wait could all do it. That's the thing. The World Health Organization had a test. We didn't take it. The CDC didn't want to take it. But their te- test failed. But any lab could have done it. And any lab did in the end. But they that they and, held they every, and that they held everybody up cost lots of lives. But it, but it goes beyond that. I mean, the story I can't get out of my head is so the characters in the book, the doctors who were in the Bush White House who developed the pandemic plan in the first place, they had this loose affiliation with 
of seven doctors who know all about various aspects of pandemics. They call themselves the Wolverines, but this is uh, comically, they're in this private group. And one of the Wolverines is a infectious disease doctor in Omaha, Nebraska at a federal facility named James Lawler. And it just so happens that when we repatriate Americans from Wuhan, we bring them back. And these are people who may or may not have COVID, but they're coming from Wuhan in the beginning of the pandemic. We bring them back to Air Force bases, National Guard facilities in California and in Omaha. And they're like, I don't know, 80 something people in this facility and they're being quarantined for a couple of weeks. No one knows how long the incubation period is, how long the infectious period is. There's evidence that like people six weeks after they get it are still infecting people. Lawler says quite reasonably, we need to test these people for COVID and calls the CDC and says, I have it. We can do this, but I need your permission to go test these people. From Redfield's office, the head of the CDC comes the memo. You're not allowed to test them. And he says, like, why? For God's sakes, why? And they says, if you test them, you'll be performing medical experiments on imprisoned persons. You'll be breaking the law. Now, these 80-something people all wanted to be tested. Instead, they they keep them for a couple of weeks, then they let them loose. And, you know, that kind of negligence is, it's really hard to explain. But it's a principle, which is that you can't perform tests on prisoners. (laughs) That yeah. we protected that principle. <laughs> Thank you, Redfield. Yes. Yeah, but it is. It, it's that. <laughs> I mean, but, and the other thing, Charity found this, Charity Dean, the main character, when she was trying to run the response in California, that all the people coming into American airports at that point, when they arrive at the airport, they're meant to be vetted and tested and before they go back home. And then they're supposed to be tracked. The CDC is in charge of this. And at the airports, they never bother to get the contact information for the people coming through. So you're never able to find where they are. If they have a positive test, it's, it was sort of like, if we don't look for it, we won't find it. If we don't find it, we don't have to deal with it. I mean, it. Trump actually did say, the more you test, the more people are going to have it. Remember that? It'd yes. be like, the more people you test for pregnancy, the more pregnant people there'll be. And then if you look, if you talk to like, public health officers who were trying to take action and who were successful in the beginning. Amy Acton in, in Ohio, uh, the Michigan people. The Trump actually undermined their attempts to communicate with the people and explain why they were doing what they were doing, say closing schools. And there's this tweet he issued, I think in April, it was, and it said something like, now's the time, activate and liberate kind of thing. It was sort of like rise up. Liberate Michigan, liberate uh, Minnesota. Yes. yes. He was triggering the very people who show up in the Capitol January the 6th to actively resist the attempts to prevent the virus from spreading. So it's not that he doesn't have blood on his hands. It's just that there's a bigger picture in which he is more explicable. The response was bad. The American response was almost uniquely bad given our resources. Hundreds of thousands of people are dead who didn't need to die. And it all takes place in the, in the context of a society that has gotten, I think, less good at keeping its people safe. I mean, one of the pieces of information that I felt like really informs the pandemic response is that in the three years leading up to the pandemic, for the first time in American history since the 1918 pandemic and World War I, there'd been a decline in life expectancy in the United States. What's that about? That's about us not taking care of ourselves. Uh, a kind of a broad. It's also about opioids. 
It is. Well, that's an opioids is about us not taking care of ourselves. It's about a society that is allowing, you know, pharmaceutical companies to make a lot of money at the expense of American life. Bro- something more deeply broken that enables the response that, that we had. That's what, and that's what I was trying to get with the book. I was, I was trying to like say, say that. I wasn't saying it. The characters in the book were saying it. But that was the idea. And it just so it all sounds so grim. It's I tell you something that's completely true. It's completely weird. It was the f- funnest book I've ever written. It was the most joyous literary experience I've ever had. It was maybe the the time in my career where I most felt like just a conduit of the story. It was just kind of flowing through me because the characters were so good and they ended up kind of in the w- real world interacting in the way you might have hoped they would if you were writing a novel. It was an ex- absolutely exhilarating experience and I found myself while I was writing it, thinking like, I'm writing about one of the grimmest, darkest periods of American history, certainly during my lifetime. Why am I having so much fun? And I think I was having so much fun because the people I was writing about filled me with hope that I thought, yeah, the system's broken. Society's a mess right now. But underneath it, we have, there's this unbelievable talent. And it's the same way I felt about The Fifth Risk. It's horrible what Trump did with the federal government. But when you wander around the federal government, you start meeting the people who are there, you fill with hope. It's sort of like, wow, these people exist. There's hope. It's not like we don't have the resources to fix ourselves and we don't have the talent to fix ourselves. It's just an organizational problem and a leadership problem. Well, and they're remarkable people. I love the 13-year-old daughter of Dr. Glass, right, uh, of who, who creates the first computer program to analyze how an infectious disease spreads. You know, this, this is... Uh, As a, a science project. Is it, yes. <laughs> which, ends up being used by, which ends up being used by the White House, you know, as to... Yep. to uh, I mean, they're amazing stories. And at bottom, really what I'm trying to do is give pleasure to the reader. And, and part of the pleasure is an understanding of the world around them. So part of the reason the characters are chosen is because they're just interesting characters. Uh, this is what your publisher put on the back. Now, I, kn- I know I've, d- I've done books, and you don't necessarily uh, get to choose. Praise for Michael Lewis. I would read an 800-page history of the stapler if he wrote it. John Williams, New York Times Book Review. I'm not sure that's the best thing to put on the back of your book, because I'm reading that and going like, I wouldn't read an 800-page <laughs> History of the stapler. Is that going to make me want to read this? So I have an issue with your publisher. You have their number. No, but you're fun to read is what he's saying. And giving pleasure is uh, it's, it's fun to read your books. Okay. Always, always great to talk to you, Michael. Thanks for having me, Al. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. 
once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.